Thank you for joining us, both of those of you who are here in person and all of you who are online watching this. Uh, tonight, as you know, we're going to be answering questions. This has been a tradition for a while for Davy and me kind of midweek to um, have a, a time to answer questions. It started out, um, well, let me be honest with you all, started out as a kind of a way to fill in an evening that we didn't know what else to do with. And by the time we got to this point, we were a little punch drunk. And so it turned into more like spiritual entertainment than something serious. And for a couple of years, it got more and more like a stand-up comedy routine. And then we decided that it was uh, actually hurting the energy <laughs> of the week. And well, actually, so, Swamiji said, oh, what are you doing? Oh, we're going to answer questions, and we tell a lot of jokes, and it's fun. And he just sort of looked at us. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So we, we realized so we were on the wrong track. We've, we've reeled it back in. Okay, let's start with a prayer. Heavenly Father, Divine Mother, Friend, beloved God, Jesus Christ, Babaji Krishna, Lahiri Mahashaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, beloved Guru, Paramahansa Yoganandaji, saints of all religions, we humbly bow to you all. Bless us with your wisdom. Let it guide our discrimination that we make proper choices in life. Fill our heart with thy love so that we can include all others in the circle of love and help us combine love and discrimination which produces true wisdom. Om. Peace. Amen. So as you can see, tonight is a little bit uh, different format and um, more informal. And so we have some questions that have been submitted, and we have slightly rearranged those from um, the way they came in chronologically. And we have some that have come in online. And of course, for those of you who are here, you're welcome. Uh, in fact, we'll probably prioritize if anybody here actually does have a question because you've made the uh, effort to come out and put a little more energy into it. And so without further ado, Oh, okay. okay, Ganesha. Do we need a mic for the person? You could just we'll, we'll just repeat. repeat, okay. The first day, uh, the seminar sang Brave with the People. In the second verse, there's, uh, Swami says, uh, the battles they fight, the victories they win, are never the victories they know. 
And that's always been uh, something special for me because I, sit t I take it in the first person or the battles I fight or the battles we fight. Could you comment on that? Do you, what, do you think, what do you think about that? That's kind of stuck in the middle of that verse, but it's, um, it's really thought-provoking. That's a wonderful question. Yeah. We repeat it. So he's saying that in the song, Brave Are the People, in the second verse, there's a, a line, a couple of lines, where the battles we fight, the victories we win, are never the victories we know. And he personalizes that to say the battles I fight, the victories I win, are not the victories I know. And could we comment on that? Well, there are probably several, that's a very, very good question. Thank you, Ganesha. There are probably several aspects to that. First of all, we tend to think that the battles we fight are outer battles. We're in a fight with somebody and that's what's happening and we're trying to be victorious. And if we're victorious, we've won the battle. And if we're not victorious, we've lost the battle. And if we're, either way, if we're victorious or not victorious, we refight that battle again and again. And if only I'd said that, if only I'd had the, the snappy response that I have now. And so, um, so, Basically, we project our energy outward. That's the power of maya comes into us. And when we come into uh, a physical form with the senses and with the breath, those two combined bring the energy, the concentration, the mental powers into a seemingly outward reality. And so... By and large, most people don't even discriminate that the reality out there isn't really happening the way that it is, seems to be happening, that it's all internal and even our senses are all really experienced inside the mind, in the brain, not outwardly. But Maya is a wonderful, wonderful magician to keep us involved outwardly. So coming back to the line, the battles that we fight, we think are outward. The victories that we win, we think are outward. But the real battle is the battle of consciousness. And so the victories that we win are not whether we prevail in a situation or not, it's really what we learn from that. More important than the victory is the attitude. And so much of Master's teaching includes proper attitudes. And we've got um, questions here tonight. Might as well weave them into this about how do you work with confrontation? Well, the first thing to work with confrontation is coming back to this um, question in that line in Swami's, the confrontation is not happening outside of yourself. The confrontation is happening in your reaction to what's happening. And if you can 
control that reaction. And so when confronted with negative energy, you respond with positive energy, as we read that quote from Master. That is a real victory. If you respond with negative energy that's more powerful than the negative energy coming toward you and somehow you subdue, you've actually lost the battle. And so the victories we win are never the victories we know because they're inner victories. Now, if you're really self-aware, then of course you do know that, oh, I did a good job in that. I didn't react or I did a good job when, when poked, I responded with love and with kindness and I did okay there. So anyway. Um, some years ago, there was a track meet at the school, the Ananda Living Wisdom School here, and <clears throat> competing with other schools. And there was one little boy who, uh, when he, his parents who lived here, his parents told Swami this story, and Swami quoted it a lot. The, uh, he, the parents asked him, well, did you win the uh, particular race he was really trying to win? He said, no, but I won against myself. I beat my own record. And Swami said, that's just the attitude we want to cultivate in the children, non-competitive, but still challenging yourself. And that's, that's an important thing, too, because, again, very often, <clears throat> I found this in my own life, I imagine you have two, all of us maybe, that you go through a very difficult situation and maybe it comes out positively, maybe it comes out negatively from your point of view. But in the future, you realize, oh, that's really what was going on. It wasn't what I thought was going on. And so just to always look beyond the superficial or the obvious winning and losing, but just to say, what's the inner battle that I'm fighting now? And the more we can do that with awareness, the more we can uh, be victorious. And uh, as uh, Swamiji said, an easy life is not necessarily a victorious one. And that's, you know, I look at my friends and over the years and new friends who have come on the path, come to Ananda. And I don't, I re, you rarely find someone who doesn't have a deep test to work through. It just, it's the nature of finding God. We're here to work out our karma. But if we can just say, it's not what it looks like on the outside. You know, someone had asked us a question earlier about the lawsuits. Uh, we won some, we lost some. We won the majority of it. But what we really won was we never lost our dignity. No matter what they tried to challenge us, no matter how they tried to insult us, that we never lost our dignity and our self-centeredness. And that was a big victory. And because of that, <clears throat> I think Ananda has flourished after that. And anyway, it's, it's a very important thought. And I appreciate you asking that. Yeah. I'll, I'll read, I'm going to read three questions that are kind of related, and it also comes back to this. So I'll start the answer with kind of referring to what Ganesha asked. Um, so these all relate to news, politics, world uh, struggles, and so on. 
How much do you allow your consciousness of national and world event into your consciousness of the national and world events? From what sources do you avail your information? Uh, secondly, you referred to world leaders as being a bunch of 12-year-olds. <laughs> I don't necessarily disagree with that assessment when placed in the evolution of time as you have. I'm curious, however, as to why or if you really see them all as equals in terms of justice. Putin, I feel, is holding the world hostage, and then she went on a, a while, but I've shortened it. And then it, today's, uh, today Davy talked about how all change has to start within, from within. I realize we as individuals cannot willfully change the direction of world politics, for example. But aren't there many people who are making external changes for the good, such as politicians who are working with Dharma, people who volunteer at orphanages, etc.? Maybe I took what she said too literally or misconstrued what she said, but should we acknowledge and bless the millions of people who are working for good in the world? Yes, of course. Now, you, you begin, and I'll refer to how you do something as a painting. You begin with the broad brushstrokes. You just kind of lay in patches of light and dark to represent what you're doing. And then you come back and you begin to refine the detail more and more and more. So in any one talk, you can only kind of lay out the broad brushstrokes uh, by and large. And so um, with world politics and with the evolution of consciousness, I was really f referring primarily to the overall state of consciousness where we are. And I was particularly making the point that as devotees, we have to be careful not to try to take our values from the world around us, because by and large, the world around us has less elevated consciousness than we do. Now, obviously, within the world leaders, within everything, there are variations. There are people who are very, um, very advanced. Uh, you know, uh, Lincoln, Master said he was a high yogi in a past life, and he came with the Dharma to help um, overcome the evils of slavery in this country. And so many, many people work in public arenas and work for Dharma. The system as we have it now does not, by and large, support Dharma. It, um, it is more based on power and staying in power. And whatever is needed in order to stay in power um, is the way the politics uh, play out. And it's very, very hard to fight against that system because um, it's, it's so divisive and so polarized that if a politician were, or uh, 
a judge in, you know, we have the executive and the legislative and the uh, judicial branch of government. If in any of those branches, a person were truly, truly working for Dharma, I doubt that he would be reelected because he would not, he would be crossing party lines. He would be crossing, you know, we elected you in order to vote this way and by golly, you'd better vote that way or you're gonna get thrown. Um, I read of a politician, did a whole essay. He said, the typical politician has about eight months in which he's really trying to work on legislation. The rest of the time he's trying to work on getting reelected. And so the system that we have now <clears throat> does not support trying to work toward Dharma. And coming to this question, it certainly does not support the question of this outer battle that seems to be so uh, important and so we've got to fight it. It does not very much support introspection and to say, what is the real battle going on here? Uh, it's just not the time in, in evolution of consciousness for that. It will come in the future. But within that, within any painting, in all the shadow spots, there are always points of light that are in there. And so there are good politicians, there are good judges, there are thousands and thousands of people, millions of people who are working very hard for the benefit of other people. By and large, humanity is much, much better than it is bad. It's by and large, uh, people are basically good. Um, but that doesn't get played out in the news nor in the battles of the politicians. And um, then I'll just say, Davy and I don't watch television, we don't listen to um, radio, and we don't get newspapers. I look at a summation each day of news on Apple News that has, which at least I like that it gives you multiple sources and so you can get both sides of a question. And we also get a summation of news uh, from the New York Times, which tends to give us more international news rather than just um, local things. And I tend to look at just basically the headlines and then only if I feel I need more information because more and more um, I find news articles don't give you news, they give you opinions. And um, I, I'm kind of like an old TV show, um, uh, Dragnet, I think it was called. Anyway, there was a detective. The facts, ma'am, just the facts. And, <laughs> and I'm, I would prefer to get facts in news rather than opinion. Um, yes, and I will. <laughs> you all know what that means now. I'll just add very briefly, and then we'll take a question from the audience. Um, what news you listen to is a very personal thing. You shouldn't listen to us. I mean, you have to decide for yourself. And Master said, be careful of reading too much news because it's downward pulling. But um, having said that, 
you know, if you find it helpful and informative, then, then go for it. But um, just be careful because uh, it can, you, you see a lot of articles about how news feeds see what your interests are, and then they take it the next step and the next step and the next step. And all of a sudden, you're way out there on the radical fringe, and you didn't start out that way. So just be discriminating. Don't, again, it's like taking control of your own life. Don't let the news and the media, social media, control you. I, I just have to be honest, about four years ago, we were in India, and um, I started getting, really getting interested in Facebook. And, oh, look, I don't even know who that person is, but look what she's having for breakfast. Wow. And, and then I just realized, why are you wasting all your time? And I just quit. And I haven't really opened it since. But, um, but some people like it. And I'm not saying it's bad. And you shouldn't feel guilty if, you're, if, you, if, if you get enjoyment of it. Everybody's got to make their own decisions in this way. So anyway, it's um, it's... I think the most important thing is to make sure you have, you get, your real news is what you experience in meditation. Like, oh, really? That's a nice experience, you know? And, and so make sure that you start your day and end your day, not with news and social media, but tuning into God. And, and the rest will take care of itself. Okay, any questions from the audience? Is Sagar online? Oh, oh, no, there's a hand. Is that on? Arya, okay. Do you have any tips for developing patience? Because there's a lot going on where, as you said, it's like a, we're in Gopara Yuga, and we, we all here have high aspirations. And how do you know what's right to do right now and what's to do for later? <laughs> okay, so... Arya asks, um, how do you develop patience? And here we are in Dwapara Yuga, and we're not sure what to do, and how do we know what to do? Well, that's part of the challenge of Dwapara Yuga, really. It's, and, but again, what is our victory from more, living in a time of moral confusion, dis, developing discernment and discrimination? And so you, you, you know, go down a certain line, and you think, well, I'm just getting more angry, more divisive with people. Maybe this isn't a good way to go. And so you re regroup your steps, retrace your steps. So patience is really, um, some, it's easier for some people than others. Some people have a more quick reactive process. Some people are slower to react. Um, <laughs> I'm one that's more quick to react. And, and I'm one that's slower. <laughs> <laughs> and. But, you know, I, you learn over time just to pause. You know, if something happens and you want to, you know, just punch back, just pause, take a breath, and do some deep breathing, lie down, whatever it might be, do some yoga postures. But you realize that actions or words done or spoken in a reactive mode usually don't bring a very happy result. And you learn that over time. And you think, let me just control, give me, let me pause a few minutes, let me get my, find the right words and are the, the right response uh, in action. But it's really a matter of 
training yourself and then learning from your own mistakes, how impatience just backfires on you. So, you know, it's, that's the beautiful thing about being on the spiritual path and living with devotees, is you see everyone around you is working on stuff. You know, everybody. And you see, oh, and, and sometimes you can see it very clearly. You can say, oh, look, that person's really trying not to react. Oh, look, that person's really trying to forgive somebody who did that. And, and, or the opposite. Wow, she really reacted on that one. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> I'm finished. <laughs> Yeah, right. Um, Kriya helps uh, because it helps us control the reactive process. And then we should practice controlling the reactive process as much as we can. But as Davy said, some people are more naturally reactive and some people less so. Nonetheless, Kriya will help either of that. So. So practice Kriya and practice doing your best to pull back and control the immediate reactive process because that's, that's where you can catch it. And you all know this story, but it, maybe some people watching don't know it. When we were driving with Swami some years ago, he was driving and we were going up to Lake Tahoe to go skiing. And in those days, Swami drove and skied and you know it was a very different time. And as we began driving up, going over Donner Pass, which is always a little bit treacherous, as probably Ganesh has had some experiences going up skiing, but uh, this, it started snowing quite heavily. And they, there were all these signs, stop and put on chains, put on chains. And so Swami hit the brakes to pull over and put on chains. But we didn't know, but the brakes were pretty worn out and the car went into a tailspin. It was just, and there were cars coming in both directions. It was snowing, really, it was hard to see. And it was just spinning across the highway like that, and cars were coming at us. And there was a woman sitting next to me in the back seat. In fact, she was the woman who went to LA, and I didn't. <laughs> but, but be that as it may. And um, she started screaming, and she, Swami! Like that, and the car kept spinning around, and then it crashed into a Greyhound bus that was parked along the side of the road. Um, nobody got hurt, but uh, nor did the bus. It crashed yeah. into the wheel well, yeah. into the hubcap, big hubcaps. And and so, and so this girl screaming, "Swami!" Crash. He turns around and goes, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> he did not react. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's see. Question online. Uh, well, there is a few. One is um, your first response was about right response toward an aggressive or confrontational force. But here's a question on the other side of the continuum. When is it appropriate to take a stand on something? For example, this person feels strongly about justice, integrity, truth, sovereignty. When, if ever, should you draw a sword and for what purpose? It's a good question. Very, very good question. You know, there are times indeed when you have to take a strong stand. And if you feel that dharma is under attack, 
you have to stand up for Dharma. One of the qualities we saw in Swami that in fact drove people nuts was that he was like an absolute boulder in terms of Dharma. He could not be budged. And so people would be trying to get him to do this or getting to do that. He was very flexible. He was like a river that would move until there was an issue of Dharma and then he was like a boulder in that river and the river had to divide up and go around. And those who wanted to move him one way or another um, were, got upset with him. So coming back to this question, sometimes, especially if there's true Dharma involved, then you have to take a stand strongly. Uh, the other time that you have to take a strong stance is when a person is trying to bully you. And uh, this is hard for some people. They allow themselves to be pushed around and it's not good for them, nor is it good for the other person. And so in those circumstances, you need to try to stand up, uh, not with anger, not with negativity, but with strong force. But that is something that takes, for some people, many lifetimes to learn. That uh, One of the issues that they bring into this lifetime is kind of a victim consciousness and a repeated victim uh, pattern. And so it's, it's a long, slow thing. But uh, for us, uh, assuming that you're a um, normal person with normal abilities, don't allow yourself to be pushed around by a dharma, and don't allow a dharma to happen in your midst. But I'll add this too. At the same time, in your strength, in your standing strong in Dharma, you don't have to be aggressive. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be angry. You don't have to be negative. You know, uh, looking what Gandhi did, uh, freeing India from the British, you know, the, just amazing watching, you know, well, the depiction in the movie, how the nonviolent movement, and they never got violent. The British soldiers just beat them and beat them, and the women carried them off, and the next row came up, and they beat them and beat them. And, but who won? The British left. And when you see movies about, and Martin Luther King went to India, you know, and he studied Gandhi's methods. And then you see movies or documentaries about the civil rights movement in America. And, you know, they, uh, the people that were going on those marches, that were going on the sit-ins, they trained. I mean, they would uh, have a little mock uh, lunch counter, and they would pour you know, hot coffee or soup on each other just so they wouldn't react. They had that training. And, so they, and they, they fought for Dharma, and we're still fighting for Dharma. We're still fighting for religious equality, but it's moving. It's moving forward slowly. But um, so yes, to stand in Dharma, to fight for Dharma, to give your life for Dharma, but not sacrifice your inner peace and your inner sense of you are doing this as a channel of God and to bring God's consciousness into this world. 
um, yesterday you talked about being the change, and you gave some tips on how to change yourself. But how do you work with those aspects of yourself that you know you have to change, but you're afraid of change? <laughs> you can repeat that. Okay. So, uh, very, very good question. Um, Nanda Devi asked, we spoke on Tuesday about uh, looking at those parts of yourself that need to be changed. Well, how do you deal with those parts of yourself you're afraid to change? And, you know, let's be honest, all of those parts were afraid to change. Everything we, <laughs> you know, that needs to be changed, we would have changed it already, but we're afraid. So I think a lot of it comes down to we identify with our personality and our ego and our past habits and past experiences. We don't know what we would be like if all those things were, you know, we don't know who we would be if we didn't have a reactive nature or if we uh, didn't get angry. You know, it, it's familiar. And that's why, um, you know, the, the great battle of Kurukshetra, I mean, it's the most powerful symbolism in, the, in all spiritual literature where Arjuna asks Krishna, drive me between the two armies, the army of the Pandavas, of upliftment and righteousness and dharma, and the army of the Kauravas, who represent all the material downward pulling tendencies. And Arjuna gets right between them, and he said, I can't fight. These are my relatives. These are familiar. These are the people I grew up with. Even though they're horrible, I, they're familiar, the familial warmth. And that's the whole thing of the Bhagavad Gita, is the soul, the prince, Arjuna, saying, I will not fight. And the whole rest of that discourse is our, this, uh, Bhagavan Krishna saying, why you need to fight for dharma, no one, and, and again, remember those, and one of the big things is nothing dies. That part of you that you're afraid to change, that energy is transmuted into a positive quality. And so it, it's such a beautiful allegory for the battle of our soul. And that's really what spiritual change is about. Arjuna slumps forward, he drops his bow, I can't do this. It's too hard. It's scary. And, and then that's when the beautiful line, the way Master gives a lot of emphasis to it in his interpretation. And then Krishna replies as if smiling. Such, I mean, that is so rich with thought. What does that mean, as if smiling? It's like the inward joy of God saying, here's a beautiful devotee, every man, that Swami called Arjuna, disciple every man, or devotee every man. And, and just to say, I will show you. I will show you how not to be afraid. I will show you how not to be discouraged. Nothing dies. It's just transmuted. You must do your dharma. In dharma, we find freedom. And on and on, the beautiful discourse of the Bhagavad Gita. But that's the essence of it, just the question you asked. That's the question that every soul asks. There are, in fact, several tools to use. Um, Davy's been talking largely about the tool of discrimination. Um, and 
to a certain extent, devotion. But prayer, when you're dealing with a tendency in yourself, pray to Master and to God to help you work with that tendency. If you're not willing to pray, that, not willing to take it on, then pray to get to the point where you're willing to take it on. Because there, there are indeed some things that, that uh, we're not ready, uh, a battle we're not ready to fight yet, not willing to fight, I should say. And so pray for strength, pray for grace to be able to take on what we're afraid to change. And you, honestly, there are some things that are huge, deep roots and you just have to keep pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling on those. And I've found it's odd. I never pull up the root. It doesn't seem that I ever pull up the root, but the whole tree disappears. You know, the problem just is no longer there. It doesn't even arise in my consciousness. So it's not like, aha, I really finally won over that. It just kind of disappears. But the power of prayer, the power of affirmation, when you're working on something, good company, try to be in the presence of others that, that uh, are strong in the arena that, uh, if we were talking about reactive process earlier, if, if you tend to be reactive, try to be with people who are not so reactive and, and draw from their magnetism. But there are many techniques for it. And one final thought Jatish mentioned, but the grace of the guru. Yeah. You know, some years ago I was having a problem early on. I mean, not that I ceased having them, but this happened to be early on. And um, I was trying everything I knew how. Because I, I, it bothered me that I would have these negative reactions. I didn't like it. And I was praying and affirming and, you know, doing all sorts of things. And then finally, I just happened to pass Swami Kriyananda. He was coming into a building and I was leaving. And, and I just said, Swami, I don't know what else to do. I, I'm troubled by this. And he just kind of laughed. He said, oh, no worry. These things are all God's grace. And then he just laughed, you know. <laughs> so, and it did go away in time. But... I think that's part of any change, any victory that we have moves us forward on every level. So if you conquer impatience or whatever it may be, then you'll find that your other tests get a little bit diminished because you start getting self-confidence. I can do this. I can overcome these things. Okay, these are good questions. I'll take one from here. Okay. This is a hard one because it's so vast. What is your favorite memory about Swamiji? And what one thing did you learn and choose to exemplify and live as a part of your life from all the many lessons you've learned through your life with Swami? That's a hard question. You want to start? Okay. <laughs> well, um, one of my favorite memories was uh, Swami and I traveled together to the East Coast, just the two of us. 
We were in New York for a week or two when he was giving programs. And then from there, we went to Disney World in Florida. And it was a marvelous time. Um, he wasn't the one that, Swami, that I had to stay and he got to go. That was somebody else. No. Um, so being in um, Disney World with Swami, Disney World is a group of villages representing different countries um, and to a certain extent different times of future thing and so on. But there's a Japanese village and a Chinese village and a Norwegian village and so on around an artificial lake. So um, you can walk around, it's probably about a half mile or a mile around the lake and you can visit. And Swami loved it. We, went, uh, we probably went around and visited um, in the two or three days we were there, we probably made six circuits because he loved going. And in one village, the Chinese village, there was somebody who was, had uh, just, uh, they had artists from their culture. And he had the ability to mold wax figurines. And so he had a kind of a long stick with a glob of wax on and he'd hold it over a fire and it would warm and, and then he'd do his little magic and it would be a dragon with beautiful wings and horns and so on. And then he would give it to one of the kids in the, that was watching. And Swami just loved all the different cultures and all of the different expressions. He, he had a, a sense of being a world traveler and to be able to experience so many so easily, it was almost like on the astral plane. And uh, so uh, Davy and I permanently have a beautiful tea set that was in the Japanese exhibit. And Swami looked at it about four times and then finally on the last day he said, it's just too beautiful, I've got to buy it. <laughs> so I bought it and had it shipped and then he gave it to us, which was, it's one of our treasured possessions. But I think the joy, uh, the one thing I think that I take most from Swami is his absolute deep kindness and caring for other people. And I've tried to inculcate that into my own life. Yeah. Mine is in two different, actually. Um, he was able, uh, I'll take it a slightly different tact. There was also his great ability to bring joy into any situation, no matter how difficult it was. And maybe because, you know, as a young boy, he was sent away from home and sent to boarding school, and he was quite lonely and without friends and missed his family. And, he was able to create a sense of home and family with whoever he was with. Everyone felt included. I, Rama sitting in the back, the very first Thanksgiving, we were all in, as Jyotish mentioned, this area in the northern Italy before Assisi was started, and it was Thanksgiving. And there were just about six of us. Swami was there, and Rama, and Jyotish and I, and a few others. And um, 
it was, everybody got a little depressed because it was like, here we were, it was freezing. We didn't know really what we were doing. And it was Thanksgiving and we tried to make mashed potatoes. We didn't have a potato masher. We had to use an old wine bottle and we were mashing. Not, we didn't drink the wine, but we found an old wine bottle. And we were and, and, but somehow Swami was able to transform it from being kind of a lonely, isolated thing. And all of a sudden it was like we were home. And that beautiful ability to whatever was going on, wherever you were, whoever you were with. We saw him with people all in every, so many different countries, so many different languages, so many different places, public and private homes. And he always created a sense of family and inclusiveness. I'm looking at Barbara, I remember when you and Dave were in Lugano with us with Swami. What a joyful time that was. And, um, you know, just we all felt we were part of a family. So for me, that's the thing I try to create, help create, is a sense of spiritual family. No one's outside of that family, unless they choose to be outside the family. But, you know, it, it's just to say we all, this is our home, this is our, and, and you know, I mean, we've lived in many, many different and difficult situations, you know. Uh, you know, after fires, we didn't have a place to live, moving around in Italy and India, and it, just all sorts of things. But he gave us the ability to just always feel at home wherever you were and whoever you were with. They were your very dearest friends, and you were so happy to be with them. So I think... That's, that's really what, what I remember. There's, he, was, he, he really knew no boundaries with people. I never saw him put up any barrier towards anyone. And in the early years of getting the work going in Italy, it was amazing because he was multilingual, as we know. And people would come and he would speak Italian and then he would speak German and then he would speak Spanish. And all, you know, within a matter of one afternoon, you know. And, um, but he, we had very few people, and I'll end with this, lest I get that sign. But um, <laughs> we didn't have very many people, so Jatish and I, once again, were called upon to be in the choir. And, I mean, there were a few others. We weren't the only ones. But whenever somebody would, you know, he would be giving a talk, and he'd ask the choir to come out, and we'd sing. And then he would always say, after we sang, this isn't our regular choir. <laughs> So if you ever wonder why we don't sing in the choir. <laughs> there was one time we were doing a ceremony and I was the minister for it. And there was a lot of music. And Swami uh, said, maybe you could sing this song. Give it a try. And then uh, he, he heard me sing and he said, perhaps it would be more dignified if the minister didn't sing. <laughs> Okay, next. Uh, let's see. Uh, Anyone in the... <coughs> okay. Are you new here? About the pillars of our beautiful life here, attunement to the guru, 
self-control, simplicity, cooperative obedience. And you know, that's the most of us have taken a long time to come to that. And we're still growing into that. But it's it's really the foundation of our life here. So if you have any comments or thoughts about how as we want to share this and bring more people, especially to the village, how we strike that balance of creating the magnetism to bring them and also the space for them to come into the realization is it us that we've taken many years to come to about the pillars of our, of our life here. Okay, he said the pillars of our life are the kind of uh, pillars of renunciation you know, uh, simplicity and self-control and cooperative obedience and uh, some of those things. And it takes a long time to really develop that. And we're trying to be open for people to come. And so how do we hold on to that and help them develop? I, I think we have to accept the fact that it does take time for, the, for those things to develop. And in the entry process, we need to allow both uh, space, but we need to set up systems so that people have a kind of a gradual ramp to develop those things. But I also think that we need to hold on to the high challenge for people. Because if we water it down and say, oh, Simplicity really means, uh, you know, kind of do your own thing and um, don't have too much stuff. And um, anyway, you get the idea. I won't mimic it out. Um, we saw a wonderful video about uh, the New York Ballet Company. And they have about 900 children from the New York City area that apply to be in a school that has extremely rigorous training. This requires every afternoon after school, they have to ride a bus and get to the lessons and so on. And uh, so they have about 40 slots or something every year. They have 900 people who apply for that. So I don't think that challenging people is the problem, setting the bar, the ultimate bar high. But if a third grader comes into that ballet school, you aren't giving them the same lessons as you do somebody that's been with the school for 12 years. And so we need to have an open community where essentially we need to have the goal high because if a person comes and they don't see a high goal and they don't feel attuned to that, then they won't develop in the right way. So the goal needs to be kept high, but the on-ramp needs to be um, made easier. And um, I, if I had lots and lots of money, I would make uh, probably the first two years here very easy for people to be here so that they could develop proper sadhana, they could get housing, they could get jobs, and so on. But um, so I, I would like this to be available, but I would not think that we would be well served by setting the bar lower than what it is because our bar is self-realization. And if we compromise that, 
then we're no longer holding on to the essence of what this community is formed about. Yeah, I, I would add, we don't have to lead with rules. You know, or, you know, the first month that somebody's here, you tell them about, well, this is what you have to do to here, and this is what you have to do to get there. You know, we, we lead with magnetism. We lead with divine friendship. We lead with making people feel welcome. But then we use discrimination and we say, and some people will come and, you know, as we use that phrase this morning, for a little spiritual relaxation. And that's fine. We're happy to do that. But then we have to be discerning and say, you know, this person really has potential. And, and then maybe you kind of take that person the next step. So we lead the people who work with new people coming have to lead with magnetism and friendship, not with rules, not with monastic orders or inner renunciation. That, that's not what people need in the beginning. They need to feel welcome and they need to feel they can be themselves. And then we watch and we, we work with the people where they are. And, but if we don't challenge them uh, on those who really have potential. You know, it's just like these little dancers. If we just say, okay, we're not going to work you too hard, they'll never get to be great dancers. You know, they, they see the ones that really have the potential and they challenge them. And not with rules, not with organization, but with spiritual goals. That's, that's really what Ananda is. It's a place where everybody can look at what their spiritual goals are, maybe at this point in my life, my goal is to really find liberation. Maybe a new person comes and their goal is to really be able to meditate 30 minutes a day. And that would be enough for them. And we honor that. But just to work with the individual, work with the individual and their growth, not with organization, not with rules, not with restrictions. But at the same time, this is, we've made the mistake in the past recent past of, oh, okay, you're on a different path. Well, that's fine. You know, you can do this or you can do that. I mean, in the beginning, that would be fine. But then just to let that kind of gain foothold in the community, people who are sharing different teachings, following different gurus. No, that's not what we're about. This is master's path, master's teachings. So I, I think we've done relatively well. And I think, um, you know, we've been in a period these, with the pandemic of, you know, isolation and shutdown. I think you all probably saw that video just came out about Ananda Sisi. Uh, it got, as of this afternoon, it had 350,000 views and it just came out. And, um, you know, it, it, but it's very clear this is about master's path. So we need to build our magnetism. We need to be, have, uh, open-heartedness and friendship to all of the new people that come. We need to keep our goals strong and high. And then you draw the racehorses. Okay, Sagar, and we're going to do 30-second answers. <laughs> okay, um, so what's your rest of the year look like? <laughs> <laughs> It'll be busy. We, we have a lot Snow. of... <laughs> we have a lot of uh, satsangs that we do on a regular basis. We'll continue satsangs for the community. 
we're hoping and expecting in mid-August to go to Italy for a month and then on to India. And we would like to be in India for two, two and a half months at least. And then we'll see what happens. We're, we're going to, in March, we'll do a weekend program in Sacramento. June, we'll do the first of the Yogananda Fest that got halted due to the pandemic. And so that'll be mid-June in LA. And um, then Inter Spiritual Renewal Week, end of uh, June, beginning of July. So, so more travel coming up than what we've had. Okay. Okay, Virani. I've had something new happening to my program at Yogoda that it's just recent. And I'll have a good dialogue going with somebody, um, you know, from the Wolf program or from Hellbex. And it sounds like they're going to come and they're very excited. And then I get ghosted. And it's a very strange feeling because I don't know, did they read something weird on the internet about us? Or did um, they just lose interest? Or something happened to them? I just don't know. And I don't know, I just wanted to get some advice about what to do when I get ghosted. I think do the best you can. It's happening all over. People are now being paid bonuses to even come to an interview for a job. And so it's, it's just a trend in modern America. And People are afraid to try new things. Or, or they're, they're just whimsical. If, if they aren't really pleased with something and it's the trigger point seems to be very small, then they just back off and try something else. And it's uh, one of the, the, we talked about economic turbulence. It's one of those turbulent uh, things that we're gonna deal with over the next few years. But I don't think it's you or the program I think it's a tendency in, in society now. But you know, really look at the community. We've, through God's grace, we've been able to survive through the pandemic and financially stay in pretty good shape, quite good shape as well, it's kind of miraculous. But you know, the schools, they've had taken a big hit with you know, student enrollment and changing economics people coming to be your apprentices in the dairy, new people coming, the question Alman raised. It, we need to put out strong magnetism of light and master's energy, and we will draw our own. That's who we want. We, want, we don't just want you know, this group or that group. We want our own people uh, we, in the sense of master's disciples or someone who's interested in this path. So we need to put out strong magnetism. Now, we were walking by the school today. Uh, yeah, OK, I'm closing, and, or a few days ago. And I just said, wouldn't it be wonderful if all these nice families moved in, in our area and really wanted to send their kids to our school? It's not an impossible thing. It's not a miracle. You know, it, it could happen. So we just need to keep our magnetism strong and know that better times are coming. And I think the battles that we have won through this pandemic, I don't think we know them, but we've hung in there and we've gained a lot. We're doing really well with internet outreach, really, really, really well. But now we need to get the expanding light open and some in-person programs because 
you, you can't get the full experience online. Okay. So I think that takes us to the end. Is and there any urgent question? Okay, Sagar says no. Okay. Looking at the rest of these questions, which we've reviewed, there isn't anything that uh, no. we can't kind of cover in talks or somehow. Okay, so let's, um, let's close by, and we ask those of you who are online to join us, because what we've really been talking about this week are the spiritual solutions that Master and Swami have given us for our times and how Ananda fits into that. Let's close by visualizing this beautiful city of light as we did this morning. With beautiful, simple homes, park-like forests, beautiful gardens and trees and orchards, happy animals, both domesticated and wild, the birds, the foxes, the squirrels, the people here, harmonious, respectful, happy, and the light of God shining down. Let's chant Om together and send out this vision of a city of light throughout the world. See you tomorrow for the panel.